Hey there, it's Carolyn. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about a brand new challenge that we have starting over in the Homestead Kitchen membership really soon. This one is all about making your very own herbal oils and culinary oils and cosmetic oils and turning them into salves and balms for your herbal medicine cabinet. If you're interested in joining me for the Herbal Oils and Salves Challenge, then go to homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Again, that's homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Hey, you guys, this is Josh with Homesteading Family, and welcome to this week's episode of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. And as you can see today, Carolyn is not here, but I have a really, really exciting guest, my friend Harvey Ussery. And um, many of you may know of him from his book. It's pretty much the Bible on rearing backyard and homestead chickens. It's called The Small Scale Poultry Flock. And um, it's also just, you just had a revised edition come out, right, Harvey, this fall here? Yes, uh, went on sale the first of this month. All right, so we'll talk about that more in a minute, but we're going to be talking about deep bedding for backyard chickens. That may be a new concept to some of you, but it is a great way to um, create a clean coop, a very healthy clean coop, a great way to produce your own compost and probably a lot of other features that, that Harvey's going to get into here. And it's, it's really, to, I know to Harvey and to myself as well and to many of us on this homesteading journey, keeping chickens, it's an essential system to keeping, you know, healthy, robust chickens and uh, integrating into kind of a uh, multifunctional homestead. But before we get to that, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Harvey and, and just catch up and see what's going on. So, Harvey and his wife, Ellen, produced much of their own food on their three-acre homestead in northern Virginia. During their first year, they planted a large garden and a small orchard and started a flock of chickens. Now, over the years, they've added and sometimes subtracted guineas, ducks, geese, um, yanked out the problematic peaches and plums, and planted hazels and nut trees. Experiment with new crops and new strategies for naturally feeding of their flocks. Now, Harvey and his wife strive for a homestead that supports a healthy, diverse, and sustainable ecology. And as we mentioned, he's the author of The Small-Scale Poultry Flock, and uh, we've just got a brand new revised edition that's out. We'll talk about that a little bit today and let you guys know how you can get a hold of that. But Harvey, how you doing? How's Ellen, and how is everything there in Virginia? Uh, we're doing very well. Everything's going well here. And uh, you'll be happy to know that uh, those uh, those tiny chicks in a brooder that you saw and uh, got some video footage of when you were here in August, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're doing terrifically. Uh, I've uh, shared some of them with uh, close neighbors and... Uh, they're they're uh, getting close to full size, and uh, maybe in another couple of months, uh, they will start laying eggs for me. And uh, it was it was fun, and uh, 
a good addition to my flock to get some uh, some new uh, new birds out there. So for many of you that may not know, I spent some time with Harvey out there on his homestead in August, and we filmed a class for you on backyard homestead chickens. Everything you need to know. This is a great extensive class that's going to be coming out on the School of Traditional Skills in December. And actually, Harvey's going to be joining me there for some live training as well. And so I got to spend a week with Harvey and Ellen, and that was just such a, a wonderful time. Um, just, just I learned so much from you being there and, and just diving in and hanging out. And Harvey started chicks. He ordered chicks and started them from scratch for us for this class. So that's those, that's those chickens that he's talking about that are never now maturing up and, and getting ready to, to lay. Um, but man, that was a hot August. Maybe that was a normal August for you. I don't know. That <laughs> out there. You, you did fantastic. We were outside filming in some really hot, humid weather. Um, I grew up, Josh, in uh, uh, parts of North Carolina where uh, we had hot, humid summers. And I think it doesn't... Uh, I think it doesn't bother me. That weather doesn't bother me as as much as it does more northerly friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a, a, a northern drier climate uh, kind of guy. The way I was raised, so that that humidity gets to you. But um, but it was uh, it was just a really really fun time. And um, let's see here. Uh, let's talk about your book for a minute before we get into the deep bedding. And um, you guys, I'll hold it up here and we will get you some links where you can get this. But but tell us a little bit about, you know, well, when the first edition came out and, and kind of what, what drove you to write this book? The first edition came out in, uh, the, in uh, the fall of 2011. <coughs> and... Um, I, my impression was it was very well received, um, but then you know after it had been, uh, I guess about eleven years, uh, my publisher Chelsea Green uh, just got in touch with me and said, "Hey, it's been a decade since the book came out. Do you think um, that you you would be able to uh, that you would?" have enough to offer to justify uh, a revision and i gave it some thought and concluded that the additional uh, experimented experimenting i had done in those intervening 10 years uh, particularly doing a lot more uh, rigorously uh, focused breeding of my own mm -hmm. stock here uh, that and a good deal of other uh, things, including uh, giving the new editions a, a somewhat different uh, basic perspective, uh, an attempt to fit the homestead flock into the wider ecological picture. Uh, for all those reasons, I thought we had uh, enough uh, new and interesting and useful new uh, material to justify a revision. And now that the book is out, I, 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 think, uh, I think that was a good conclusion. And I think uh, my editor and I uh, 
I had a really good editor, uh, and in Chelsea Green uh, as a publishing house, they're really terrific uh, outfit, and they publish really good stuff. and And I, I think we've produced a book that is uh, is going to have uh, more on offer for people who uh, are read the first edition, and for those who are coming new to it. I hope uh, I hope they'll find it. Uh, a a good guide to a more natural um, approach uh, to keeping the homestead flock. I, I'm confident they will. And I think that's something that, that many folks are waking up to and is so, so important that, you know, we're here not just trying to provide food, but we also need to be good stewards of the land as we're doing that. And you you incorporate that uh, into, you know, into your book and into the philosophy of, of rearing and raising chickens and um, being both a good steward of them as well and your care for them, but uh, also of the land and the integration and, and into systems. And that's that's one of the things that I really love about the way you approach things is, is how integrated everything is. And, and I know you're a little bit familiar with permaculture, and that's kind of my you know, base of reference where we can really tie in different concepts and you get the chickens working in the garden and the garden providing the chickens food and you're creating compost with this deep bedding while creating a nice sanitary environment for the chickens. And um, it's just a wonderful approach. And so if you guys don't have this book on your shelf, you need to have it. And, um, you know, there's lots of it's great to be doing the video. It's great to be doing classes like we're doing at school, traditional skills, but nothing replaces just a, a good, good, solid book like this. I'm trying to get this in the frame. There you go. Um, we want to have those on the shelf. And, and this is really the one for chickens, in my opinion. Um, with that, let's let's dive right in here. And of course, Harvey, you and I are throwing around this deep bedding method. And there are a lot of people here that may not know what that means. So would you explain to us what you mean by deep bed method or deep litter method when it comes to uh, chickens and chicken coops? Um, deep litter or deep bedding uh, is a way, uh, to my mind, by far the best way uh, to manage the manure uh, of your chickens or other livestock um, so that um, there is less labor involved. Uh, the uh, the environment for the chickens is more sanitary. Uh, it's more, the hen house is more pleasant. Uh, it, in other words, it doesn't stink in there. Um, and they, <laughs> amazingly enough, the um, the deep litter as it becomes more bioactive with these trillions of decompositional organisms, uh, actually produce metabolites like vitamin B twelve and vitamin K and other immune enhancing. Uh, compounds that the chickens actually uh, in, uh, ingest as they're finding little critters to eat in the litter, uh, and that actually uh, becomes a support for their health. So it's just uh, the, uh, really the heart of the system. Let's put it this way. Out in nature, when the chickens uh, poop, what happens to that poop? Well, uh, immediately, these natural organisms jump right on uh, that manure mm -hmm. and 
uh, and uh, feed on it, use the energy in it as they break it down for the great return to Earth. So um, our chickens are now not outside all the time. So deep litter is a way of finding a way to inside the coop allow the manure to enter the same decompositional process that it would outside driven by trillions of microbes and um, and yes uh, allow for that breakdown in a way that is not a threat to health and uh, is certainly far more pleasant and produces this wonderful byproduct of compost that we can use uh, in the garden and the landscape. Right. So unlike out in nature, though, we've got often a lot of chickens in a confined space, right? Hopefully enough space for them, not too confined, but nonetheless, they're in a confined space. So that that litter, that manure, that manure is not getting spread out and we get into the stink, right? If we're not managing things well. And Joel Salatin, who's uh, who's, I think, a mentor, definitely a mentor to me. And I, I think to you as well, Harvey, talks about that. If you come in to a chicken coop or a barn and you and it smells bad, you have a management problem, right? There's there's something wrong there if it smells. I don't mean that it smells like a farm. There can be a clean, good smell to a farm, <laughs> you know, where you know animals are there and you recognize that and you can smell them. But if there's this ammonia or sulfur right. or this stink, it's not good. And you naturally get that in a lot of people raising chickens over the years in a chicken coop. It's just kind of accepted that you have this either hard pan of chicken poop that develops in the yard or you have this slippery, stinky mess that you can't walk on. You can't put a shovel through. And that's kind of just been accepted as kind of normal for raising chickens. And, and what we're talking about here is something entirely different that uh, is um, a very healthy way to manage that manure, I think, not nonetheless, also to to create you know some other byproducts, right? Um, you know, you you mentioned Joel, and I love uh, his quote. I've heard it many times. Uh, that illustrates exactly the point you've just made. Uh, Joel says, "If you are around any livestock operation." regardless of species and you smell manure you are smelling mismanagement <laughs> and i i love to quote that because as you say josh far too often we make the assumption that well poop stinks right and uh and those that that awful paradigm you mentioned of the of the manure just caking up and having to be taken out hacked out with a shovel uh people just assume that as the norm but joel's uh, that quote from joel uh, implies that there is another way. If you manage the hen house so it doesn't stink, um, that's got to be doing it right, <laughs> you know? And I couldn't tell you the number of times I have had people come through my uh, hen house who have 
visited, visited previously hen houses that didn't use the deep litter system. And at some point they would stop, look around and sniff and say, why doesn't it stink in here? <laughs> so, yes, they're, they're, I, I want your listeners to understand that there is an alternative in which the interior of the hen house doesn't smell bad at all. And it's much uh, a much more in pleasant environment for you to be in when you go out to collect the eggs and so forth. And it has to be a lot better for the chickens as well yeah so what are, what are some other benefits to the deep bedding method i mean obviously we know okay it's reducing stink making a cleaner environment healthier for the chickens are there some other benefits to this to this uh, deep litter method deep bed method do you consider mental health a benefit <laughs> because I think one of the great benefits of uh, of deep litter and by the way deep the the deeper the better let's let's call it at least four to six inches as a minimum but uh, up to twelve inches if you can manage it that's terrific but uh, that uh, field of loose decomposables. Uh, that is something they can work in all day, let's say in winter. I mean, chickens should have access to the outdoors as much as we can manage. But let's, let's imagine a flock who's uh, confined a lot in the wintertime. And uh, imagine how stressful it would be to just have nothing to do and just be bored in this period of confinement. And uh, but if you go into my chicken house, when the snow is three deep, three feet deep outside, you'll find that my birds are still very happily busy, busy doing what? Scratching the litter and they're scratching in the manure, but they're finding something or other little critters to eat. And that has positive health and feeding benefits this has been proved in scientific experiments all right well let's i want to i want to get to in a minute here talking about starting maintaining and just we'll, we'll walk everybody through uh the deep bed method but are there times when you wouldn't want to use the deep bed method you know where a person may have chickens is there is there any reason um, where it's not advised or not really applicable. I, I can't imagine uh, a, a, a chicken housing situation at any scale in which I would not recommend deep bedding, deep litter as be, uh, for best manure management. I will say that uh, I, I do recommend a uh, um, an earth floor if you're going to build new or if you have access in some way to uh, an earth floor. Um, I, I do recommend that. You can use a constructed floor if that's what's already available to you. But um, I have an earth floor in my hen house, and the only time I ever had a problem specifically with the deep litter was one, uh, one summer that we just had 
unbelievable, uh, unbelievable amounts of rain uh, every day for weeks. We had rain, rain, rain. And the I like an earth floor because there's always a, a slight wicking of a residual amount of, uh, of uh, moisture into the litter. That's a good thing. But the litter should never get really damp. And that's what happened because of all of this rain coming in uh, at, at the underground level and more than wicking up into it started um, wetting the base of the litter and, and making the whole mass uh, damp. And that supported the growth of mold. Hmm. And we... We had some eye infections, and uh, I, I uh, lost some uh, turkey poults that I was raising. And, um, and you know, you know how it is on the homestead. You have these problems. You take your hits, but you learn from them. Mm -hmm. And so I learned the importance of uh, for uh, unusually rainy periods. That's a time to really carefully monitor the st state of the uh, the litter and make sure it doesn't get damp. You can add dry shredded leaves. Uh, you can add more of the uh, totally dry. Uh, uh, pine shavings, kiln-dried pine shavings that you can buy at the co-op, and similar uh, measures to, uh, to, to get the entire mass. And remember, the chickens are going to help by scratching and distributing what you have added to dry out the medium. They're going to help by working that in and getting the total mass of the litter uh, uh, drier. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only time I ever had a problem using uh, deep litter. And um, with that one exception in my own experience, I would just say I can't imagine keeping chickens on any scale, whether a trio or 200 chickens. Uh, I can't imagine not wanting to uh, to have that manure disposal kind of let's say going on automatic <laughs> that's really what deep litter is about I, you know and i think um that's well that was the exception for you it's a it's a good note about uh coop design construction you were talking about an earth floor uh and generally having an earth floor you know for a little bit of that moisture wicking um, but it does speak to, especially if you're getting started out, knowing where you're putting your coop, because if, if it ends up in a lowland and too wet of a spot and it's an earth floor, <coughs> shavings aren't going to solve all of the problems if it's always damp and you're going to end up with mold problems and different things. And so that may be a m point where if you have no other choices, a wood floor would be good or mm -hmm. better yet, probably try to make sure you're building and putting in the right location and, and getting drainage so that you avoid right. most of those events. I mean, sometimes we have a year, right? And the weather just does what yeah, yeah. you right. can't contain it, but you don't want to end up with a coop that's like that every year. And right. this is a right. moment where the wood shavings, which is what we're talking about. I don't even know if you really even said wood shavings yet for, for deep litter, but there's a point where that's not going to absorb all the, right. all the moisture if it's too right. Wet. Right. Yeah. So, so that that's a very good point, um, Josh. I um, 
if you're starting new with your coop, uh, I do recommend an earth floor, but that's an excellent point. I, I think you should address the drainage issues and the location, whether higher or lower ground, but also drainage. And uh, if you if you anticipate that you, the drainage is going to be a problem, you should start before uh, making the coop itself. You should uh, start with some uh, preventive remediation on uh, drainage for the site. Good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about how to get started. So you've got a coop. Let's let's presume. Um, you, you've got appropriately sized coop. You've got an appropriate sized yard for your chickens. Hopefully you're going to get to let them out, but you know, you may, a lot of people live somewhere that's, they've got to have a chicken yard that's fenced in, given protection for predators. You've got a perfect housing. We're kind of going to go past all those details and just assume for the sake of this conversation, somebody's getting started. They have all those things. They're all ready to go. Um, and they're thinking about this deep bedding method. How how do you get started? What raw materials do you use, and and you know what do you need to do? Um, let's uh, let's back up just one minute uh, okay. about a point that uh, I think is another thing to to address at the beginning, and it it is a. Uh, it is a design point that's going to cost more bucks up front. And so I think a lot of people might avoid it. But think about this. I do like the earth floor. I do like the, uh, the deep bedding. But the deep bedding is highly bioactive. And so if it is in contact, full-time contact uh, with wooden structural members, uh, that's going to tend to degrade uh, your structure. And so I wish now that uh, I, I built a pole barn structure, and I did take measures to protect uh, that wood, um, not using pressure-treated wood, but took other measures to protect that wood. But in retrospect, I wish I had spent the additional money to put in uh, a perimeter concrete block uh, perimeter foundation mm. that would be let's say the depth of the deep litter uh, 12 inches say um, and that would be the deep litter space but all of the wooden part of the structure would be above the level of that concrete enclosure for the litter and then long term i wouldn't have to worry about the uh, wooden parts of the structure being in touch with that highly bioactive um, uh, decompositional process that's going on in the litter so just keep that in mind possibility uh, as you start question but, now you're yeah. me think of something so say you have gotten started, you didn't get that concrete in. I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, but what about something like a metal perimeter, like corrugated metal? And I think I saw Justin Rhodes do this. Um, I think he it was more to do with predator problems, rats and stuff getting into the coop, but like corrugated metal on vertical so high up. So, so to, to, create a barrier, an inexpensive barrier, if you've already got a coop and you don't have that foundation. That seems like that would probably be a good, you know, aftermarket solution, say. 
Uh, yes, metal or um, uh, possibly fiberglass panels. Uh, yes, I think that would be a good remediation if you've already built, but you want to uh, keep that uh, bio reactive uh, litter out of contact with the wooden part of the structure. Yes, I think that would be a good way to uh, to go. Yeah. Good. I'm going to do that in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, think, uh, you know, you can use a lot of different uh, materials for your deep litter, but key on three characteristics. High carbon, mm -hmm. loose and absorbent, and decomposable. Now, if you key on that, uh, there, you know, you pretty much can't get it wrong about what you can use. Uh, high carbon, to be sure, because mm -hmm. there's because there's a lot of nitrogen in the incoming, right? The right. poop. The poops that the birds are laying down, uh, you know, even if they are outside during the day, which I hope they will be, they're doing half their pooping at night on the roost. And uh, the lot of, there's a lot of nitrogen in that. And so you want your litter to be as high carbon as possible to balance that uh, incoming nitrogen as much as possible for as long as possible. The, uh, the, the material should be loose and absorbent so it can absorb the manure and so that the chickens can easily work it. And remember that those, uh, all those microbes, they need oxygen just like you and I do. Keep this in mind about, decomp about microbial action. The decompositional microbes uh, thrive in oxygen-rich environments. And a lot of the pathogenic organisms thrive in anaerobic conditions, oxygen-starved environments. So you want the scratching of the chickens in a loose medium, loose absorbent medium, to work the manure in and uh, keep lots of oxygen in the mix, and that's going to that's going to support decomposition. That's the whole point. We're we're establishing a highly decompositional medium into which the poops can enter on their way to to their to the great return to Earth. Breaking down to the ele uh, the basic elements. Right. So, what are some of those high carbon, loose, small, you know, small enough to scratch in materials that you recommend? Um, I, one one thing that's uh, readily available, and if you're operating on a fairly small scale, you can get the uh, baled uh, kiln dried wood shavings. From the from the co-op or a place like uh, Tractor Supply, don't use cedar shavings or uh, shavings of other aromatic woods. Don't use shavings of black walnut. But other than that, uh, uh, any uh, dried wood shavings usually purchased. Uh, I use a lot of that. 
Uh, that's an excellent high carbon loose absorbent base. Uh, but free at hand, if you have uh, a lot of trees, oak trees, I love oak leaves. They're very high carbon and they take longer to, uh, to be pulverized and to break down. So they're actually uh, doing the job for a longer period of time before they have to be renewed. But uh, fall, uh, fall, le fallen leaves in the autumn, and uh, as I said, my favorite is oak leaves. Uh, shredded cardboard, if you can get that. Uh, shredded cardboard is very high carbon and works very well. And then you might uh, live near uh, a place where uh, a place that is doing uh, processing of uh, agricultural products, uh, and you might get some of their uh, refuse the refuse from their processing. I'm thinking about things like uh, shredded corn uh, stalks mm -hmm. or, or crushed corn cobs or uh, if you're in, in an area that where a lot of peanuts or buckwheat uh, is grown, uh, peanut hulls or buckwheat hulls, uh, that's really, really good uh, deep litter. Uh, so uh, as long as we're focusing on the three characteristics that I mentioned, um, there, there's a pretty wide range of materials that we can use. What should not be used uh, is uh, things with a much lower uh, ratio of carbon to nitrogen in, in the material itself. And a good example is hay. You know, people sometimes think, well, how about hay? cast off hay uh would, wouldn't that be a good material because it is certainly loose and absorbent but it it's uh carbon to uh, nitrogen ratio itself is uh low enough carbon in relation to the, its own nitrogen that it very quickly starts generating ammonia uh, as it breaks down and uh, so stick with the high carbon uh, materials so tree leaves would those because they're they're flat and you know a lot of flat surface area will will the chicken will they mix up okay or are you going to get some layering do they need to be shredded first or something or are they okay just to take them off the trees in the fall and pile them up um uh, yeah, you can take, uh, you, you can make a big leaf pile and then draw from that uh, to, as you renew your uh, litter in the coop. Um, but yeah, now I'm, we're not talking about green leaves. We're talking about leaves that have dried and fallen off the trees, so they are dry. But even in the case of oak leaves, and they're quite substantial, um, uh, in my experience, if they're dry and you're uh, kind of topping off with them on an ongoing basis, uh, no, they're, not, they're never going to mat up, uh, at least if the chickens have enough space. So let's so let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, Joel uh, has made the observation that I've heard many times that, uh, you know, we all know that. Yeah. Typically, 
chickens don't get enough space in their housing and we need uh and generally speaking to get them a lot to give them a lot more space in their housing but he makes this very interesting rule of thumb observation if the chickens uh have three square feet of um well let's do it in the reverse if the chickens have uh, five square feet per bird on a deep litter system, there is not going to be any capping, any formation of an impervious crust of manure on the top of any portion of the litter. They're going to keep it all worked in to the litter. Uh, at four square feet, there will be some capping of manure uh, under the roost, and it will be necessary to, uh, to um, go in there with a fork and turn that capped material over so they can work it from the bottom and break it up and then scatter it out and incorporate it. Mm-hmm. And at three square feet per, for, per bird, there will be significant significant capping over uh, much of the space. So that's that's an argument in favor of having more uh, square footage for the birds. Uh, and if you do, the manure is never going to be concentrated anywhere so that it cannot be efficiently worked into the decomposing uh, litter uh, by the chickens themselves. Okay. So you want to keep that at, at uh, four foot per bird, four square foot per bird or better. Um, so getting started, you've got your material picked. Oh, you know what? Sorry, let me back up. Straw. We didn't talk about straw, and that's yeah. one that's common <laughs> to a lot. Of, a lot of people have access to straw. Yes. It's either the baled wood chips or straws, kind of the, a couple of things, or leaves that are very, very common. But what about straw? Is straw a good medium? Are there any challenges with using straw? Um, straw is uh, is is certainly um, a litter material that uh, can be considered. And in my experience, uh, although I have heard from people who say, I use straw over an earth floor without problems. But uh, let me make a, a sharp distinction here between straw as a litter over a constructed floor and straw over an earth floor. Um, if you have a constructed floor, a a straw makes a perfectly good uh, litter. Okay. Uh, you you still should, you know, o- over time, if you use that straw litter, you will find that it becomes overburdened with manure, and that is not good. But as long as you ad- continue adding fresh straw uh, over that constructed floor, it's going to remain dry enough that it's not go, going to go to dampness, and it is not going to give rise to the growth of a mold called a mold called aspergillus. And breathing the spores of aspergillus uh, can cause serious uh, respiratory distress, not only in our chickens, but in our own lungs. 
So this is this is something to be concerned about. Um, it is some. It has been found that in some cases a uh, straw litter over an earth floor will uh, go toward uh, growth of aspergillus, and that is not a good thing. So um, I tend to avoid straw in my litter. My litter right now is a mix of. Uh, fall leaves and uh, wood shavings Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it it is that mix and some straw from the nest gets scattered you know but and and that's not a problem but i do not make a significant portion of my litter straw over an earth floor i don't want to take the chance of growth of aspergillus. Now, uh, by the way, uh, Josh, when we were talking about materials, I talked about wood shavings, but I didn't talk about wood chips. And so let's make sure we don't let's make sure we don't forget that question. Can you use wood chips for deep litter? And the an- the answer the answer is yes, yes. Differentiate for us real quickly before you give us that answer, wood shavings versus wood chips. Just some people don't know, and so somewhere there's a line between shavings and chips. The wood shavings are a byproduct of preparing uh, wood in a lumber mill, starting with the tree trunk and cutting it, rough sawing it first, and then planing it into the uh, smooth dimension boards that we that we go and buy uh for for a construction project so the those 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 thin shavings off the surface of the rough sawn boards uh that's what we that's what i'm calling uh wood shavings but wood chips are are much coarser much larger particle size uh if you see the uh, crews working on uh, clearing the electric lines and they're cutting down the branches that are too close to the lines and they put them through a big chipper uh and that chops that chops the the these larger limbs up into pieces let's say uh maybe the size of your thumb and smaller Mm-hmm. So uh, it, you have reduced the volume of, of these big ungainly uh, limbs and uh, have condensed it into a pile of chips. Um, but the, the particle size is, is quite coarse. Yep. But you will find that the chickens can work a medium like that. So it, it's just fine for deep litter. Okay. And, he, and here's the caveat. Um, you shouldn't use wood chips when they are still green. In other words, uh, totally fresh from having been chipped from a live tree. Uh, don't use those uh, 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 wood chips that are still in that green state. They need to break down. They need to uh, uh, decompose some on their own. Because in that green stage, stage they too can uh, give rise to the growth of certain molds that are not going to be good for the chickens. 
so you can put those chips into a pile outdoors, exposed to the weather, uh, for several months, half a year, or up to a year, and then uh, you can start moving them into the uh, the chicken house uh, as a uh, as a litter, uh, still a high carbon litter that the chickens can work and will not. Uh, produce these harmful molds okay all right so we've got some good options for starting a deep bed some good carbon materials very very solid carbon because all that poop is nitrogen and um, how thick to start brand new bed clean coop what do you want to start with how, how much of a bed um <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're starting with an existing structure, that may place some limits on how deep you can go with the litter. But I would, I, I said earlier, I, I, I like to think of four to six inches as the minimum. Okay. We, 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 we do call it deep litter for a reason. You, you want some depth there. You want to get some biological depth. <laughs> in in the process that we're encouraging, so I would say uh, try your best to um, to to think of uh, in your situation four to six inches as the minimum. And Joel uh, in in say his racking house where he, uh, they raise rabbits in cages over. Uh, laying hens who work who work the litter, and uh, he uses wood chips in there, and uh, he thinks of uh, twelve inches as the minimum uh, there. So uh, yeah, deeper is better, but uh, go with what uh, you go with what is dictated by the constraints of of maybe a building that you are already using mm-hmm. or or other limitations. Uh, but, you know, even even a few inches is better than that accumulation of raw manure that, that, that doesn't do anything but stink. It's inert. It's biologically, it's, it's, not, it's not in a happening situation to decompose and, re, and, and become, some, become something useful, compost, uh, as opposed to just, just being a stink and a bother uh, to, to have to deal with. Right. So we'll get, to the, we'll get to the compost here in a minute. But getting there, so you've added your deep bedding. You're starting, general rule of thumb, four to six inches. You can go deeper if you have less. Maybe you need to start a little less, fine. But uh, four to six inches is a rule of thumb maintaining that how often do you get in and turn it do you add shavings do you just do four to six inches let it go so far and remove it all what's what's the maintenance once you've you've put you know that initial bed down let's just let's just call it six inches you put that in and what's what's next as far as any maintenance what do you need to look for what do you need to watch to know because i mean at some point it's going to accumulate manure. So you've either got to get it out or add more. Um, how do you, how do you think about that? How, how would you tell people to, to what to do? Josh, are we talking about mucking out? We are not talking about mucking out. We are talking about, um, 
that maintenance of the litter mm -hmm. so that it is fully functional to do the job. So uh, here is one. Um, here is one. Uh, okay, let, let me put it this way. Uh, you, you have enough homesteading experience to learn that the best learning is to learn from your uh, cows, your goats, your chickens, correct? Yep. And lear learn from the plants in your garden. You, you are a student when you try to do any of these things on the homestead and in the garden. And in the same way, as you work with the, uh, deep litter, there is a learning process. Who is your teacher? The deep litter. So the first, uh, early on, you're going to have this experience. At a certain point, the car, the uh, the nitrogen in the incoming manure, constantly added. It's going to kind of overtake, overwhelm the uh, amount of carbon in the litter. And what happens then? You start smelling ammonia. Ammonia starts being produced. Ammonia is a gas of nitrogen, NH3. It is a gas produced by excess nitrogen and of course everybody who who uh makes compost in a conventional uh compost heap they smell that manure when there's too much nitrogen in the mix that's what you smell coming out of that heap nitrogen and that's all of your good old uh, i mean uh, uh, ammonia and when you smell that you know all of your great nitrogen that you were wanted to be in the compost for use in the soil it's right. being gassed off to the atmosphere so in the in the hen house um the the um the litter itself will instruct you. It will teach you that you have allowed the process to go for, uh, to imbalance, too much nitrogen, and the signal is uh, that whiff of ammonia. Now, at that point, you add more high-carbon uh, material so that you reestablish balance, and actually you want an imbalance in favor of carbon mm -hmm. to 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 keep uh, neutralizing all of that incoming uh, uh, nitrogen in the manure. But what I'm talking about the learning process is the first couple of times your nose is going to tell you, but remember that uh, ammonia in the uh, atmosphere of the hen house can be damaging to the respiratory tissues and the lungs of your birds before your nose can detect it. But do but do not despair. Once you've had once you've had that experience a couple of times, you learn to read the litter. Yep. You you can just look at the litter and you can read the condition and you know when it's about to go over into ammonia production and you also know what is the solution. Add more high carbon litter. So that so so we're not talking about 
a need to muck out on any schedule, but rather um, the proper management so uh, in, in the litter so that the nitrogen never gets out ahead to produce ammonia. So let me synthesize that a little bit. And, and this is pretty much what I tell my kids as they're learning to manage the coop or, or any area in your barn. Because we have, we have to apply this on a fairly large scale. And so if you smell, if you start to smell that ammonia or that manure, it's time to add. And as you're doing that, visually observe, realize that you want to start learning to add before you smell anything and you'll as you're as you're saying you will learn to observe you should be observing right smelling you're looking you're going okay i need dad shavings uh all right now i'm starting to see what this looks like and i can start to know beforehand and add those shavings and so i think that ties into kind of the next question that people can ask and that's kind of how much do i need to add you know do i add an inch do i add three inches um again i think and and you go ahead and take this but i think that it it it, you know you kind of got to observe and and learn to feel that out as well right if you let it go too far you might need a little bit more but if you can be preemptive you can put i tell my kids put more on you know less on more often you know right right letting it get to where oh man you walk in you smell and you go now you got to feel like you got to put you know three inches on instead of an inch or two yes don't get to the point that you have to over remediate yeah but instead um yeah uh frequent smaller applications are better and uh uh in this game when it comes to adding more high carbon uh litter there's no such thing as adding too much. <laughs> if you've if you've got the space to 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 add a lot, uh, you you can't add too much. You can add too much nitrogen. That's what creates ammonia. You can't have too much carbon. But yes, Josh, uh, the the key I think as you get into the rhythm of work of managing the deep litter. As you get into that rhythm, yes, you find that uh, uh, frequent smaller additions, you know, a couple of inches at a time, uh, is that that's that's really better than uh, letting it go too far and then try to play catch up with with big additions. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's and. and- and excuse me, but uh, sometimes the rhythm is determined partly by uh, what what's coming in at the time. So in the fall, you're dealing with all these fall leaves, and you might find that you're 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 adding more than you really need to uh, to balance the uh, the incoming poops. You you add more at that time just because you've got so many more uh, leaves coming in. Although you can always stockpile them in a in a big heap too. Right. So let's let's follow this out to the logical conclusion, which is that uh, you're adding carbon, you're adding nitrogen somewhere. It's going to get deeper and and your space is filling up and you've got to move from maintenance to mucking out. Uh, No, no, you ain't going to muck. You ain't ever going to muck out. That's that's that's, 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 that's
That's the beauty of uh, well-managed deep litter. You're never mucking out. So, so instead of <laughs> mucking out at the stage you're talking about, uh, we're going to do compost removal. <laughs> okay. All right. Now you're talking my language. Compost <laughs> removal. So, so yes. Uh, wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait, though. Yeah. We had... We went from chicken poop and wood shavings to we're, we're removing compost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happens? <laughs> Magic! People like Magic! Know, but <laughs> Magic! The whole time, we've been making compost. and we That's right. About it. That's right. That's oh. right. Okay. And, that's, and that's why I often use the term, the term magic when when I am talking about this subject because all this time we've just been trying to keep the hen house from stinking, right? Right. But at a certain stage, if you if you uh fork aside some of that loose, fresher, uh coarser material on the top, you find to your amazement that and especially over an earth floor, um you you find that that finely granulated material at the bottom has literally turned uh, uh, turned into compost down below down next to the earth turned into compost and you you scoop up a handful and you smell it and it's just like picking up a handful of finished compost from a, a well managed compost conventional compost heap that you had to work so much turning and turning and turning. It has that earthy smell and not the slightest hint of raw manure. Mm. And and you can take that out, you know, uh, when, when we think of mucking out, then that's got to be done on some kind of sane schedule <laughs> so, so that things won't get too bad in there. Yeah. But but when we're uh, when we're taking out compost when and as needed, um, there, there's no particular schedule for that. You are going to reach some limit where you you just can't go any higher with the level of the litter, and you will need to remove that uh, some of the material. But um, do fork aside the fresher, drier, looser, more still high carbon and not broken out material. Move that aside first and then scoop out all of that nice composty stuff next to the earth and take that out and, and use it in the garden. Um, but leave some of that too because it will help to inoculate uh, the fresh material that you then add and keep the process going. By the way, getting back to straw litter over a constructed floor, that can work for reasons that we discussed earlier. However, in my experience, uh, the the uh, a straw litter over a constructed floor should be further composted in a conventional compost heap before using in the garden. That's my experience. And the compost that's, that we talked about, that fine, granular, dark, crumbly stuff under the top of the deep litter, 
that can be used directly in the garden, in my experience. Okay, so essentially, just let that deep bedding get as deep as you can handle it. You can just keep going, keep adding. But but I think something I want to draw out here is from looking at it, you're not going to really see that it's finished. It's doing its thing down under, but you're adding. So you've always got new layers on top. So really, you're either going to let it go as deep as you can handle, your coop, your, your infrastructure can handle, or you make them to the point it's springtime, you'd like some compost, whatever the reason move the top layer aside and it'll be pretty obvious you'll have the loose stuff hasn't broken up yet you can move that to the side and then remove the deeper stuff and spread the other stuff back out add some more and keep on going so so yes so josh we could say that the rhythm of the management of the manure the rhythm of the management of the deep litter at that point uh, becomes part of the larger rhythms of uh, uh, adding to for soil fertility in the garden or around your uh, nut trees or on the pasture. Um, whenever you need that compost, and in this kind of system, it's going to be there mm -hmm. almost almost any time you need it in the usual cycles of wanting to renew the fertility of the soil. It's going to be there ready to go. Love that. They're <laughs> doing more than producing eggs. They are, they're actually growing beans and cucumbers for you. <laughs> right, right, right. So... We're, we're getting down on time. I don't want to keep you too long, but um, uh, another question here for people, and, and I know you kind of have a situation like this. You've got your indoor coop, and you've got your outdoor yard attached to your coop. Um, and so is there any difference in managing the two? One's, one's inside, it's under roof. You know, that's where the, the chickens are sleeping, laying eggs in the winter and the rain. The one that's outside, like you have a yard outside, all protected, but you're, you're doing that deep bedding out there as well. Is there any differences in managing that? And kind of that, that, that goes into the next thought is about, you know, adding other things like, you know, vegetable scraps from the house. You're going to be feeding your chickens, you know, waste from the garden, whatever. Um, how does that come together? Maybe they're two separate things, but I kind of see them as one in that yard. No, there is, uh, there are important distinctions to be made, but we start with the, uh, the basic vision, shall we say, that um, if your chickens are in are confined to a chicken run outside, and there are other options, for example, like uh, setting them up to be on pasture. But if you have to go with a confined chicken run, then, as I always put it, uh, bring the deep litter concept from the from inside the coop to the outside. Uh, and it will provide the, all the same benefits, giving the chicken something to do and certainly some, uh, some critters to find that they can eat in the, uh, the deep mulchy litter um, and preventing the manure from uh, just becoming a source of uh, fl flies breeding and uh, a source of runoff pollution. So uh, we... 
in, in the outdoor run, we should, again, lay down as thick a layer as we can manage of all of those cast-off decomposables um, that any homestead produces. But here's the big difference. Outdoors, we no longer have to think in terms of um, uh, using only the high carbon materials. That is, that is quite appropriate for indoor deep litter. But on the outside, guess what? Any decomposables produced on the homestead, just throw them in there and to be part of that uh, base uh, that the chickens are going to be working in and pooping in and finding critters to eat out of. So, spent crop plants from the garden, uh, prunings from the flower beds, uh, again, uh, leaves, fallen leaves in the fall, uh, just on and on and on. And uh, um, lawn clippings, mm -hmm. if you... If you're going to mow your lawn, uh, the cl uh, clippings from the lawnmower, that's good green feed for the chickens. But don't just dump in really deep layers of pure uh, grass clippings. They will, they will uh, become a, they will collapse into a dense putrid mass uh, growing with moles and slippery and hazardous to walk on. So instead, for using uh, grass clippings, uh, just just apply a sprinkling, uh, a very light sprinkling that's not at all deep, just half an inch or so in there. The chickens will eat some of it, incorporate the rest into uh, the rest of the duff. Uh, where it will become part of the decompositional process. So that's the big difference. Uh, all these other materials that you wouldn't want to use inside, uh, like uh, uh, bean and pea vines, you know, you put those on the inside of the hen house, uh, and they just shoot the nitrogen way up because of their own contained nitrogen. Uh, but outdoors, um, it's really more like a... Sir Albert Howard style, conventional style gardener's compost heap. It's much more like that. And you just, uh, but unlike Sir Albert Howard's compost heap, you don't have to layer the browns and the greens and, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to, you don't have to be fussy about the process. As the organic compostables are generated, you just throw them in there. And the chickens will love it. Well, and, yeah. and and the end product is the same. Great compost for use. Uh, you can actually use them to do your composting for you. Hey, yes, God, yes, you yes. I think your mic there slipped down a little bit. Might have got against your bird. I think I was getting a little static. There we. I think it was rubbing a little. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I, that's the thing I love is you can take all that material, give it to the chickens, and let them add to it and and uh, mix it up and compost for you. So uh, it's 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 a it's one of the pathways on the way to zero waste on the homestead. Love that idea, moving towards zero waste. 
And uh, I don't know if we can get to zero, but there we sure have lots of opportunity <laughs> to minimize. And I think we're always learning that we can make better use of what we have and create less waste, or at least put that waste to a proper use. And in an right. organic system, we should be able to do that more and more and more. And I think that's just a good segue you guys, uh, what what Harvey's sharing here is just one piece of the picture of a, a very holistic management system for taking care of your flock. And so I want to encourage you guys to check out Harvey's site, The Modern Homestead. He's got an extensive blog there, I believe, uh, where he's writing. You, you keep that up to date. You're still writing your blog and, and uh Creating new content, or is that a? a um, I, 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 it's it's not a blog per se in the sense that I add uh, a new uh, bit of content every day or every week, but it is a large library of articles uh, that can be of use to the gardener and keeper of poultry. Um, and um, and yes, I do add new material from time to time. Yeah, but yeah. yes. But yeah, but yes, it's. Uh, I think it's about two hundred pages now of some fairly information dense pages. Yeah, that's that's a resource you guys want to be bookmarking and saving when you're, um, you know, you want to do some research. Besides putting Harvey's book on your shelf as well. Uh, you did mention the modern homestead, but but note that the extension is dot. U.S. And there are other The Modern Homesteads with different extensions, so go for okay. that .us. <laughs> and we will put that URL in the link down below, along with a link to Harvey's book, to the revised edition of the Small Scale Poultry Flock. And as well, look for uh, a class. We, we've, we've, uh, Harvey has produced a video teaching class going through a lot of these concepts for the School of Traditional Skills. That's also going to get released in December, and, and Harvey's going to come back. So um, some great resources. Harvey, um, it's been great hanging out with you, and I just want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and time with all of us today. Uh, really appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Josh. I've enjoyed the chat, and uh, I hope your listeners will uh, get some tips they can use in this very, very important uh, topic. Thank you. Alrighty. Well, we will talk to you soon. See you later, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pantry Chat, Food for Thought. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. To view the show notes and any other resources mentioned on this episode, you can learn more at homesteadingfamily.com slash podcast. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.